What's up everybody? Welcome to Fawn Flicks. On this Indian Explain, we're looking at a wounded fawn, where a serial killer brings a new victim on a weekend getaway to add another body to his ever-growing count. She falls right into his faux charms while he's eagerly lusting for blood. What could go wrong? This is the third movie from director Travis Stevens, and it's been cool watching his progression as a filmmaker with each. And to me, a wounded fawn is his best so far. A lot of horror filmmakers out there are obviously very familiar with the genre and its tropes. Stevens leans into this, presenting a gritty 70 look thanks to being shot on 16mm that feels right out of many classic slashers and giallo. He does well at setting up situations where we think we know exactly where things are heading, only for it to get twisted on its head. That same concept is at play in the story here, as we follow an unaware woman bonding with a serial killer. It's like we're waiting for that shoe to drop, but when it does, things go kind of bonkers really. I was honestly kind of blown away, and it all comes together surprisingly well. There is a ton of depth and interesting ideas to delve into, and we'll make sure to cover everything that's important to understanding everything. Let's check out A Wounded Fawn, breaking down just what the heck goes down in the story, its important ties to specific works of art, and explaining the head-scratching ending. We open with a quote from surrealist artist Leonora Carrington. I suddenly became aware that I was both mortal and touchable, and I could be destroyed. Leonora's work is known for her haunting paintings that incorporate images of sorcery, metamorphosis, alchemy, and the occult. They feel as though you're seeing the world at the witching hour, when the rules of reality are upturned, and we see through to another darker dimension of beasts and creatures beyond our own. Pretty important. We move on to an art auction and are introduced to another pivotal piece of the story, a sculpture of the Wrath of Aranus. The auctioneer explains its meaning. It represents gods of vengeance in mythology who are summoned to dole out justice. They are specifically female deities from ancient Greek mythology. Their wrath is wrought in many different ways, but it includes tormenting madness upon murderers. They are most likely personified curses but there is a possibility they're originally conceived as ghosts of those murdered. Wow, so we already have a lot of art history going on here. Importantly, mostly feminist forward. Haven't even started the movie yet, but we'll all see that it is quite important as things progress. A bidding war erupts over the sculpture and whittles down to a final two, the shifty-eyed Bruce and the much more professional-appearing Kate. They battle back and forth until the price soars to 130K and is too rich for Bruce's blood, leaving Kate the winner. She brings the sculpture home and chats with her client on the phone in French. She gets settled in the kitchen, congratulating herself with champagne, but things feel a bit ominous already. She's surprised by the doorbell ringing, and after a few attempts, relents to answer. It's Bruce, who apologizes for his showing up, calling it unprofessional, which she corrects is in fact illegal. He lays out a limited time offer for her that sounds too good to be true. His client insisted that he make another offer for double what she paid, plus an extra bonus for her personally. She demands to have part of his commission as well, and Bruce caves to the terms. With that, she invites him and offers him some champagne, telling him not to be a sore loser. He's impressed by her burgeoning art collection and the champagne as well, calling it tasty. What a totally normal guy. She leaves to call her client, and we notice that Bruce's hand is involuntarily shaking. A red beam of light appears in a hall behind him. He stares intently, and a tall owl figure manifests. He gets to jump on her from behind with an ornate hand blade, and the god watches on, hearing her blood splatter. He straight up tears her throat out with the blades, and she's soon a goner. He gets washed up and becomes insane sensed at something, barking to stop it. We jump back to the hall, which is now blank and back to normal. Well, now we know Bruce isn't really an art dealer, he's a serial killer, and it seems the red owl represents that bloodlust or murderous aspect of himself that forces him to kill. We then move on to meet Meredith, who is chatting with a therapist about her previous bad relationship. It sounds like her ex has finally moved on from bothering her, and she too is ready for something new. At an art gallery, she gushes that her therapist gave her a compliment, and it sounds like things are finally going well after the trouble 
Wilson past year. Even better, she's found someone new that she's excited about, and they demand to know all the details about the mystery man. She reveals that she met him at an art opening, and they're going to meet up this weekend for some sweets we love making. It's pretty obvious who her new beau is, but of course, Meredith has no idea about his darker nature. She excitedly packs up some lingerie, and a specific record as well. She gets a buzz at the door, and when going outside, a snarling dog curiously runs right by her path. Bruce is then revealed at the car, asking if she has everything. Yup, she's a light packer, and he compliments for not just being stunning, but pragmatic as well. He loads up her bag, suspiciously eyeing a nearby security camera, and lowers his hat bill to stay out of sight. In the car, they have some conversations to get to know each other better, and learn that she studied art history as well. Her thesis was, appropriately, about deconstructing the myth of the muse and the erasure of female artists. Uh, sounds like Travis Stevens was thinking about that too, apparently. Bruce can only let out a little, oh, in response. They go on to compare their longest relationships, one year for him, while three years from her. He thinks that sounds pretty serious, and she divulges that he just wasn't very nice. He warmly tells her sorry and puts a hand on her leg. She tentatively takes his hand and inquires about his family. Bruce goes strangely silent before saying they died when he was a kid. A ways down the road, she spots a sign for a fruit stand and wants to pull over, but he moans that they're so close to the cab and he just wants to keep going. They pass by the stand, adorned with several rows of literal red flags. Oh, poor naive Meredith. It doesn't seem like they're as close as he promised, seeing them still driving into the night. He gives her hand a little kiss and gushes, this is the part he loves most, the intimacy. She laughs and returns the kiss, and they pull out onto a country road. They are really out in the middle of nowhere here. He did tell her that it was remote, after all, and she clarifies that she's not scared. It's just super dark out here. Yeah, just the wood he responds sarcastically. They arrive at the cabin, which he informs her is really special to him. And he also is glad that she decided to come out here. It's gorgeous, she offers, and he tells her to fetch her stuff while he unlocks the door. She steps out and surveys the darkness, only hearing chirping and trees dotting the night. She goes to retrieve her bag and hears a disembodied voice telling her to leave. She asks Bruce about it, but he shrugs. Man, didn't say anything. She looks around in confusion, still seeing nothing there. That is, until she returns to the trunk and someone whooshes by behind her. And as she closes the trunk, there's a brief flash of a screaming woman inside that spooks her good. We can assume this must be a previous victim of Bruce and already reminds us of the wrath of an Eris thing. And this must be a wrong spirit looking for justice. She shrugs it off as Bruce calls her inside and another figure dashes by. She seems genuinely floored by the cabin's somewhat dated interior. She's actually swooning for it, she describes. Then something else catches her eye. The sculpture, just sitting out there on the table. She immediately recognizes it and he loves the drama in the piece, finding the deity's terrifying. She knows even more about the piece as it just came through her museum recently to establish its providence. He fibs that it's just a reproduction and she gets in for a closer inspection, calling it one hell of a repro. He draws her attention away to tour the rest of the house and she's bowled over once more in the kitchen where he says he'll be working his magic. She beams that she's already enchanted and Bruce is happy. In that case, I'm ahead of schedule. He's quite good at playing the part, but we see when she asks for red wine, his darker tendencies are already surfacing, clutching something tight in his grip. You know, red and all, red wine. She heads to the bathroom, hearing a menacing snarling in the woods, but once more, it seems to be nothing. She gets all dolled up, and they toast to art and beauty. To the night ahead, she adds. She shows off the record she packed, and puts it on while he finishes his surprise dinner. The record plays, and Mare dances around the room, blissfully unaware of what is awaiting her. Meanwhile, in the kitchen, Bruce's hand begins to tremble while wielding the knife. He starts getting on edge, peering around the room for his red owl companion. Not yet.
did. Meredith digs through the shelves, finding his photo albums curiously all empty. Must not be a fan of the past, she surmises. She pulls out another, finding a photo wedged in between of Bruce with another woman, Leonora. Yep, just like the artist, that wasn't clear. The record warbles to a stop, and she hurriedly puts it back. A window screen randomly falls, and she apologizes before fixing it back. Another figure slinks by, and she just misses them, but the motion light kicks off, indicating someone must have been out there. Another person pops up right out the window, wearing a mask. She again laughs it off, promising Bruce she's not crazy. She's drawn back to the sculpture, and texts one of her friends regarding it, as they just had seen it themselves at the museum. While busy on the phone, the door swings open by itself behind her, hearing wind chimes ringing intensely. Bruce is still busy prepping, the pomegranate looking like a straight up bloody crime scene, but it's also an important symbol throughout art and history, usually related to fertility and resurrection. He attempts to keep the wolves at bay, telling himself not yet, and calms himself. He knows it's not too far off now though, glancing back over his shoulder suspiciously. Meredith walks outside, and the ringing grows more strange and ethereal. Bruce surprises her with a flick on the ear, but laughs it off as just a joke. He blames her nerves on the woods, and brings her back in for dinner. After they leave, there's a soft growling sound from somewhere in the area. The shot then pulls out to someone there with long hair definitely watching over things. During the meal, Bruce waxes about his cooking philosophies, but Meredith is looking distracted. The strangeness of things is starting to get to her. She is curious when he got this place, and has anything strange ever happened here? He's not sure what she means. You know, unexplained stuff. Bruce chuckles and eyes her seriously. Does she not want to be here? She deflects that is not the case, and he's confused. Then why are we making such a stink about the cabin? She claims she isn't trying to do that, and he encourages that he's had many lovely times here, and she can too if she can just try to relax. She can't stop herself bringing up Leonora. Did she ever experience anything? He feigns ignorance until she points out the photo, and he admits that he bought the house from her, and no, she never had any problems, other than being dead, you know. He leaves to fetch more wine, and she desperately apologizes, believing that she offended him. Now even more clearly, a woman strolls right by the window. Merrick exclaims that someone is out there. The motion light went off again and everything. Bruce is confused. He doesn't even have a motion light, and lo and behold, it kicks back on. He grabs a knife, accusing her of messing with him, but she's adamant. She knows what she saw. He does at least go to investigate, but only hears some strange scratching noises. We can, however, make out the faint outline of someone there behind the tree stump. He's confident that she's just imagining things and unscrews the bulb. There, now you won't be freaked out anymore. She is too unnerved at this point and wants to head back to town. She's even still willing to spend the weekend together, but not here, really wanting this to work out. He puts his foot down. They just got here and he cooked them a whole meal. Plus, he doesn't feel like driving that whole way. He suggests again they try to relax, but that is foiled by a strange loud thud. She flips out and he tries to keep convincing her they're fine. They're the only ones out here. She admits that is part of the problem and Bruce gets it. She's afraid of being alone with him. She clarifies that she's just scared of the area, but does want to be with him. She asks him to check out the sound and he agrees, even if still thinking she's being a bit overdramatic. He peeks outside and a snake slithers by to his shock. Meredith has had enough. Either he drive her home now or she's calling a ride chair. And he finally relents to her demands. She leaves to go pack and gets a frantic phone call from her pal. She locks the door and Wendy warns her to get out of there now. Bruce gets another glass of wine to keep off the shakes, but it's to no avail. The red light and giant owl have returned. Bruce takes in its impressive stature, his mouth agape and awe at the sight. He nods, okay, it's time, and begins to get excited. He retrieves his hand blade and notices the woman still watching from outside. Wendy continues that the statue was stolen and Meredith assures her they were just about to leave. That will prove difficult, however, when Bruce goes for the door, knocking and pulling at the knob impatiently. She tells him, I'll be right out, and there's more alarming info. The woman that bought the sculpture is missing too. Bruce seems to leave her alone, and she takes a deep breath to calm herself 
herself down and dons a fake smile. Yet she can't hide her true feelings for long, appearing terrified as soon as walking out. The omnipresent wind chimes grow louder, and as she continues, is taken over by a ticking clock. She goes on into the kitchen, finding the sink running, but no Bruce. He appears behind her and makes his true intentions known. She attempts to run away, and he grabs her down to the floor. He digs the blades deep into her neck while they struggle. She keeps writhing around, and the blades go in deeper. Bruce starts hyperventilating while his red owl god supervises. She grows weaker and appears to flutter away, probably much more likely after removing the weapon, causing her artery to gush out blood. Yeah, it's supposed to be inside, not outside. She ceases movement, and it looks like he's claimed yet another victim. He proceeds to cover his tracks, burning her dress, and destroying slash disposing of her phone. He finishes his ritual with a vigorous self-love session at the sink. He then returns to Meredith's body and reveals that he was lying earlier. This is his favorite part. Shockingly, she opens her eyes and bashes him right on the noggin with his precious sculpture. So, nope, not quite dead yet, as we see. Then our story is thrust into a drastically different and much more surreal direction, most likely at least partially due to his massive head injury. There's a peaceful shot of the woods and pleasant nature sounds intruded on by another person running by. He wakes up in the morning and things feel totally different with the sunlight pouring in. Meredith asks what he's doing and pinches him gently to wake up. Basking, he answers, basking in the sun. Meredith hops on top of him, kissing all over his forehead, and asking him to please wake up. Also noticing she no longer has any neck injuries, so most likely we're no longer seeing strictly reality anymore. He tells her about a dream he had. There was a black and white checkered floor all around him. If he stepped on a black square, he would fall forever. So he tried his best to stay on the white ones. The only problem is he realized there were no white squares, meaning he had no option beyond succumbing to the eternal darkness. It seems to be related to his own darkness within him. No light in this sky. That's weird, she offers and gets right back to making out. She then quotes, enter the chorus of furies, question like hounds. What? He mutters, and they're joined by Kate. Ho clear is here, the trace of him we seek. He's still not getting it. What are you saying? All your secrets are escaping, she explains. These lines are direct quotes from an ancient trilogy of plays, this one in particular being the story of the aforementioned Furies. In the story, they pursue Arrestress for the killing of his mother. Perhaps he was responsible for his parents' deaths as well. Wouldn't be too surprising, really. He flashes back to reality, groaning in pain, and a massive pool of blood surrounding him. He checks his injuries in the mirror, and his eye is swollen shut. He psychs himself up and gently brings his hand to the head wound, pushing a protruding piece of skull right back into place. This leads to an immediate overload of colorful flashes. Uh, yeah, his brain probably ain't working too good after that bonk. He a sheet into a wrap and grabs a fireplace poker, setting out in search of the missing Meredith. He looks everywhere around the house, in the car, behind the wood pile, but no mare, until he hears twigs cracking and leaves rustling from deeper in the woods, and assumes she must be out there. He later sets out to the area where he buries his bodies, unearthing several large barrels. There's an empty one for Meredith, then another with only a skeleton and flies left behind, most likely Leonora, and finally there is Kate freshly decomposing in the last. A voice calls out his name, and he confusedly follows a sound. He bumps into a massive floating sheet and a voice beckons to know what he's done. He's inundated by more swirling colors. There's another twig snap from behind, sending him back to the barrels. What sounds like growling emanates from one, and a dog emerges, barking in a distorted demonic tone, making chase after Bruce. In between the brush passing by, its dog face transitions to Kate. She glowers at him, eliciting a horrified, what the f 
fuck from Bruce. Yeah, agreed, dude. He takes cover behind a tree to catch his breath and listens intently to the woods. The tranquil chirps give way to an eerie howl. There's another creaking getting louder and another creature appears reaching out for him. Bruce yowls and scampers away, coming to another clearing with a flapping sheet. He falls to his knees, slack-jawed, seeing female figures dancing on the material as it floats higher, turning into some twin pig shit around here, getting real weird. He looks up at the top and the sheet flutters away along with the images. And another masked figure with red hair is there holding her arms high. They point a finger right at Bruce and tell him to approach. He declines the invitation and hoofs it all the way back to the house. He goes for the car, kicking it into high gear and quickly backs right into something. Well, so much for that. Now with a better glimpse, we understand that they are the spirits of Kate and presumably Leonora, also representing two of the three Furies come for vengeance. He turns away and fiddles with the engine and they just keep standing there observing, a similar role to the chorus from Greek tragedies. Their hands start to move in the same erratic fashion as Bruce's when he's overcome with bloodlust. He reaches back in and the engine is sucked away. Somehow the others took it. Kate's spirit chides him with a no, no. The redhead woman is back calling him a murderer and a thief. He flees inside, locking the door and tries to convince himself he's just seeing things and losing his mind. That sounds about right as he winds up in a heated argument with himself. The trio are seen waiting for him outside and the horned one is handed a torch. He sees the flames outside that then somehow appear in the walls. Bruce curses them for being sneaky and the fire goes out. It appears again behind him and a door starts to repeatedly slam. He goes to run and someone grabs him by the leg, sending him full stop right into the ground, leading to more colorful images. The flame appears on his head and he frantically tries to extinguish them in the sink. He turns back to more growling, which continues as he makes his way through the house. He calls out to the trio, why are you here? Vengeance? To wring remorse from my body like a wet rag? Punish and torment me with nightmares for the crimes that I've committed? He tells them that won't work. You'll get nothing from me. No nightmares they can show can compare to the ones that he's seen his entire life. Wind begins to blow inside the house and he comes to a naked Kate squatted on the stove. Her flesh sizzles on the heat and she primarily growls at him. Bruce asserts he understands that she's angry, but this won't change a thing. We'll see, she smirks, and the stovepipe comes to life like a demented penis worm of some kind attacking him. He tries to fend it off and it blows soot right into his face. He wields tongs to try and grab it, Kate laughing at him the whole time. He gets it pinched, trying to control it, flinging it back and forth. We then tellingly pull back, seeing he is in fact wrestling with nothing. Yep, brain trauma in full effect, or the madness that the Fury has promised. He drops the poker and is drawn away by more laughter. Kate and the Wood Woman are waiting there. The red-haired woman joins them, slamming on the glass. He gets startled and falls back, further injuring himself, spawning more dizzying colors. His condition is worsening, seeing him frothing at the mouth and he even wets his pants. The sounds of women screaming and an owl get more intense and frantic. He shoots up to the sculpture right there at his feet and thinks he's figured out what they want, offering it to the Furies. He insists that he's not a savage. He doesn't want to hurt anyone. In fact, he wants people to be happy. Happy with me, he claims. He blames everything on a rogue piece floating inside of his head. That is not him. It's not even a part of him at all, but it takes control sometimes. When he sees something beautiful, this piece wants it. He groans that he does try to fight the impulse and regrets it every time he loses. If returning the sculpture will make things right, please just take it, he begs. He places it gingerly on the ground in an offering. He then runs back to the window, waiting impatiently for something to happen. Nothing does, but he somehow convinces himself, good, it's over, despite the sculpture still sitting there untouched. Yeah, yeah, brain is not working anymore. He vows he won't ever let it happen again, and pleads with the gods to believe the words he says, his truth in the night. He keeps ranting, and a dark figure passes. Mare's record comes back on, and Bruce is lured out to an absolutely bizarre display. There's two people in weird kind of leather masks flanking 
being the red owl. They siphon some kind of liquid through several ornate beakers. Their scepter is turned on and emits a green laser beam, allowing the owl to remove its mask. Bruce looks on in absolute disbelief at what he's seeing. A kind of weird puppet of lungs or a heart of something with googly eyes? He mutters a little what at the bizarre sight, and flame particles start to dance over the scene. What we've seen here is impressively one of Leonora's surrealist paintings brought to life in a way. Notice the very similar designs, especially the mask guys with the little lantern things and everything. Pretty interesting. And I'd say the implication is just as with Carrington's work, we are now peeking beyond the veil of our reality into a wholly different one. A voice crackles over the speaker, asking if he can hear her. Nod, if you can, she instructs. Well, how about speaking? After a few attempts, he chokes out a weary Yes. She offers, if he truly wants to make things right, they're going to have this conversation. She has some important questions to ask, and he must answer truthfully. And now we get that the voice here, along with the red woman, is actually Meredith, or at least a representation of her. She probes him about why he asked her out. Why choose her specifically? And he maintains that it's not him, but the floating piece inside of him that decides. When it comes to how many, he only cops to a few. And it is indeed Kate and Leonora buried in the barrels. What's interesting and frightening is that he calls this a new collection, meaning he must go from place to place killing as many women before moving on and starting a whole new collection there. He continues to assert he had no intentions of harming her when inviting her out here. He even tried to stop the thing, but it's too strong. He assures her it's nothing personal, there's nothing she could have done differently. If it wasn't her, it would have been somebody else. She digs deeper into his being, and the owl apparently cannot be intimate, so that was actually Bruce that found her attractive. As she asks more, things start getting hazy, and snakes begin to crawl all all over the place, including on the statue. She wants to truly understand and wants him to show her that piece in there. Dig it out, she commands. Bruce considers, hey, that could be cathartic and perhaps might be a way to truly purify himself. He digs up in the hole and pulls out a baby chick. She lets him down. No, he's fucked. This will be cathartic for her though. Just as before with the furnace attack, we blink back to reality and see that chunk was no baby bird, but he actually yanked out a piece of his brain. Ooh, you might need that to live. The others join them, and he realizes that he's been duped. You tricked me, he yowls. He makes a fresh head wrap and fashions a makeshift toga, stomping right over to the statue. He furiously unleashes his blade upon it, but accidentally gores his own leg. Clumsy! The others begin to recite more from the play. As the wraths hunt, they will prey by blood. Follow the tracks of blood like to some hound that hunts a wounded fawn. Title line, they chant murderer, thief, louder and more intensely. No, he shouts back and runs off whimpering. The furies pursue him through the the woods, echoing his earlier confession back. Hear my words in the night and know them to be true. Now he's the wounded fawn and they are his hunters. Tables are turned, Brucey. He cries. He won't let it happen. Believe in what I say, he pleads. He keeps running for dear life and comes to Mare waiting for him up ahead, along with more flashes of colors, which cause him to drop. He comes to back in his barrels and is for some reason under the impression that he has been saved. I'm ready, he smiles and calls out, where are you? Meredith is there and he genuinely thanks her. She doesn't understand why he's a thief that robs women of power, beauty, and their lives because you have none of those things. He crawls towards her in submissive astonishment. I knew you'd understand me, he croaks. She's flushed out the red owl and saved them both, he believes, still not accepting that it was really him responsible for all the killings. It's over, she tells him resolutely, and she wants him to say it. I'm a murderer and a thief. He refuses, still insisting it was the red owl behind the killings, but she knows that darkness is still inside him. She can even see 
see it. She points, it's right there, and the flashes continue, seeing something moving under his head. A black hand emerges from the wound, mimicking his finger movements. He screeches in pain, it's no fair. Kate growls at him, and he feebly attempts to fight back, but winds up stabbing himself. He keeps repeatedly, violently attacking his own neck, and Mary removes her mask, revealing her face covered in shiny stones. He continues goring himself, grunting to please help me. And we are brought back to reality once more, Mare now with her bandaged neck, so you know, real world, she growls for him to go fuck himself, and he doesn't let up on the stab session. He continues writhing on the ground, hurting himself over the entire end credits, and even when they end, he still ain't dead. Dang boy, you sure are getting that hardcore Wrath of Aranus style vengeance in the end. Without all the context clues provided at the beginning, we might be left wondering what the heck happened here in the story, but I think it's pretty clear. As just said, Bruce was targeted by the Wrath of the Furies, who specifically seek vengeance for those murdered, and that definitely fits the bill here. Bruce even mentions being terrified of the deities, and so it makes sense that through his injured and already deranged mind, this would be a poetically fitting end for him. He really was scared deep down inside that he would be found out, and ultimately taken out for his unforgivable crimes. Another parallel to the original play referenced is the outcome of his representative character. In the play, he did kill his mother, but begged for forgiveness and admitted what he did was wrong, so he escaped his fate of death. After a little more research, turns out he was technically saved at the very last minute thanks to the God Apollo. Pretty standard for those kind of plays, apparently. While Bruce, even at the end, still thinks he wasn't responsible, he couldn't possibly accept that to be the case. It would mean something was deeply, deeply wrong with him. It was wrestling with this that ultimately led to his downfall. Perhaps if he had come clean, he would have achieved purification, but, well, no such luck. While this could all still be in his mind, there are hints there is a more supernatural presence afoot. Even before Bruce gets injured, Meredith sees flashes of women around the house, the spirits of previous victims. They initially seem to actually be trying to warn her, even opening the front door to hint that she should get out of here. In this case, it seems that it was by bringing the sculpture here that he unleashed the Fury's wrath upon him. As he had been killing for many years without consequence, it was only when bringing it into his possession that all this transpired. They are representations of his victims, but also the Furies, as Meredith, even though not dead, becomes part of Bruce's elaborate fantasy. But this also could just be the Furies doing their thing. As is mentioned, they inflict madness upon murderers, and that's definitely accurate for what happens to Bruce as well. The real point, either way, is that Meredith was able to survive her injuries, and knowing Bruce was extra messed up was kind of playing with him along the way, all just to get him to admit what he did. It's appropriate that she never even lifts a finger, and it's ultimately Bruce responsible for his own fate. With that, we have come to the conclusion of this ending explained for a wounded fawn. Don't forget, before we go, you can send me requests for any movies or TV shows you'd like to see me explain by sending them my way on any of my social media accounts at FoundFlix. What did you think of a wounded fawn and its ending? What are your thoughts on all the madness? Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. Make sure to like, subscribe, and follow. Thanks for watching Found Flicks. See you next time.